came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today, Friday the 26th of February 2021, we always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro-treat for naked-eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers, and he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist or particle physicist. This episode features Ian's March Sky Guide for 2021. Enjoy. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. It's great to be back with this jam-packed 2021. And here we are. And it's great to be speaking with you again, Ian, to launch our 2021 season. And we're looking at the month of March. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for the month of March? Well, March is jam-packed with sky action, but sadly, tragically, most of this sky action is in the morning skies and requires you to be up quite uh, quite early. But before I go into the planetary action, let's have a look at our friend the moon. March 6th is the last quarter moon, followed by the new moon at March 13, which is best for stargazing. Then on March the 22nd, you have the first quarter moon, and then on March the 29th, the full moon. Now, the moon is at perigee on March the 3rd, apogee on March the 18th, when it's furthest from the Earth, and at perigee again on March the 30th. So this is a day and a bit after full moon on the 29th. So you could technically call this a perigee slash supermoon. However, the April and May perigee moons are much better for seeing the moon in fact, May, May is uh, the optimum perigee moon for seeing the moon that's largest. Nonetheless, it'll be still interesting to, to have a look at. And the sky is 
pretty devoid of planets at the moment. Our only planet, of course, is Mars. Now, Mars, of course, is the centre of action because of the uh, arrival of multiple spacecraft and the landing of Perseverance, but we'll talk about that in the tangent. So in the early evening, Mars is low in the northwestern sky. Now, it's faded quite a bit from its brightest last year, but it's still relatively bright, although it will dim significantly over this month, going from brighter than the red star Aldebaran to dimmer than the red star Aldebaran over this month. Nonetheless, it's still reasonably bright and easy to see. Uh, it starts the month between the 1st and the 9th, within a binocular field of the beautiful star cluster of Pleiades and orange Mars nearby. So it'll be closest on the 5th and the 6th, but not spectacularly close. Then Mars passes underneath the Pleiades and it forms the second eye for Taurus the Bull on the 17th and 18th of the month. So that'd be quite interesting to watch. Then the crescent moon gets in on the act, with Mars being close to the crescent moon on the 19th, and that will be very nice to, uh, to watch. It'll also be reasonably close on the 20th, but the 19th is still be the best time to see Mars and the crescent moon. Yep. So that's all for the classical planets, but the minor planet Vesta is coming to opposition this month. So at the beginning of, of uh, March, Vesta is just visible to the unaided eye at magnitude 6 in Leo. It's in the tail of Leo. It's readily visible in binoculars and can be found between the relatively bright star 81 Leonis, which is about magnitude 5.5, and uh, Chertan, which is also Theta Leonis, and that's a reasonably bright star. So from the 1st to the 4th, when Vesta is at an opposition, uh, you'll see it move between these two stars in the binocular field. Vesta is the brightest object aside from these two stars in the binocular field, so it's easily visible and it can be seen to move significantly night to night, so it's very easy to pick up uh, what object is Vesta. Uh, unlike Uranus, Vesta is uh, much easier to, to pick up and there's lots of little dim stars nearby to confuse you about which one's Vesta and which one isn't. So that's the evening sky. So let's have a look at the morning sky where most of the action is going to be. Now, Venus is too close to the sun to observe, and it's not going to be visible until it returns to the evening sky in May. But uh, at the start of the month, we have the triumvirate of Saturn, Jupiter and Mercury. Now, uh, listeners may remember the spectacular close approach of Saturn and Jupiter. Last year, Saturn and Jupiter are now uh, relatively far apart, but they're still an obvious pair. And Mercury has joined the pair, forming a triangle. And it's now readily easy to see uh, these three an hour before sunrise. All three continue to be visible easily for most of the month. From the triangle, Mercury rapidly approaches Jupiter. And on the fourth, they're very close. 0.5 degrees apart, not as spectacular as the Saturn and Jupiter conjunction, but still quite significant, about a quarter of a finger width, and uh, easily visible in binoculars and also easily visible in wide field uh, telescope eyepieces. Thereafter, Mercury heads away from 
Jupiter sinking towards the horizon. But as the month wears on, the astronomical twilight becomes uh, later and later in the evening. So Mercury will be uh, visible for quite some time. Basically, until nearly the end of March, Mercury will be readily visible in the morning skies. So for some time, you'll see a lineup of Saturn, Jupiter and Mercury. And because the ecliptic is almost vertical, this will be a very excellent time to see all three of them very easily in the morning skies, an hour before sunrise, and possibly even a little bit earlier. Cool. Excellent. So going back to our morning skies, the next thing that happens is the thin crescent moon joins our lineup. On the 9th, you'll have the moon, Saturn, Jupiter, and Mercury. Then on the 10th, thin crescent moon is very close to Saturn, again within binocular distance, but not telescope distance. For the most of the month, the trio of, of uh, Saturn, uh, Jupiter, and Mercury will uh, delight the early risers. Fantastic. And of course, we've got the stars. So remember that you've got the uh, the new moon on March 22nd. Uh, this will be an excellent opportunity to go out and look at the stars. Orion is always easily visible. It has been dominating the northern horizon, but in March, it's now in the northwestern horizon and sinking. So not as spectacular as before, but still lovely to look at. In the south, I talked uh, last time about the Magellanic Clouds. The Magellanic Clouds now are, are not as high as they were. They're beginning to sink towards the horizon, but it's still good to catch them up in binoculars sites, although the, uh, the small Magellanic Cloud is uh, sinking much further and it will be harder to see uh, against the, uh, against the uh, glare of the horizon. As well, I mentioned the Southern Theodes is a group of stars clustered around the star Theta Carina. It's now readily visible as the Southern Cross and the uh, and Carina rise higher in the sky. It's roughly about the, uh, roughly due south at astronomical twilight, but now it's much higher than the sky, much more easily visible. And again, the Southern Cross is much more easily visible. If you have a, a look below Beta Crucis, the bottom star that forms the cross piece of the cross. You may uh, see close uh, to it a little uh, grouping of, of bright stars. This is jewel box cluster, which will look very nice in binoculars. Also rising higher in the sky is Omega Centauri, in my mind, one of the finest globular clusters in the sky. It can be found at the apex of a triangle formed by the pointers and the Southern Cross. Now, both the Southern Cross and the pointers are now much higher in the sky than they were in our last broadcast and are now regularly visible. Uh, and if you uh, take as your baseline Beta Centauri, the blue-white star in the pointers, and Beta Crucis, the blue-white star at the bottom of the cross piece in the cross, and move about uh, two and a half hand spans to the east of that, uh, you'll see a fuzzy star. And in binoculars, this is a little uh, clump looking like a ball of cotton wool. And in a telescope, you can readily resolve that into a ball of thousands and thousands of stars. So uh, again, 
Omega Centauri will be better in the coming months as it rises higher. But if you want to have a, a look for it now, look about an hour and a half to two hours after astronomical twilight, uh, and you should be able to pick it up. Again, if you want to do telescopic observations, waiting longer will be better. Okay, and that's March. Lots of good things to see. And again, sadly, tragically, most of the interesting reaction is occurring in the morning, so you're going to have to get up quite early. <laughs> Fantastic. It's a month for early birds. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us for this month? Indeed, I do. And, of course, as I said at the beginning of my talk, the arrival of the rover Perseverance on Mars by its rather spectacular sky crane has captured our attentions and we're all busily refreshing the, the NASA Perseverance website hoping to see more images. It will soon be joined by the Tier 1, one uh, rover from uh, China and there's also the United Arab Emirates Climate Orbiter Hope. So there's quite a lot going on at uh, Mars at the moment. So while most of us are glued to our computer screens hoping for more uh, uh, images. If you go out uh, uh, to the sky and look northwest, as I said before, you can see ruddy Mars. And next to it is the beautiful cluster, the Pleiades. And as I said uh, in, our, uh, in the main talk, you'll see Mars drawing close to the Pleiades. And at the moment, it's within the binocular range of the Pleiades. Now, in many indigenous cultures, the Pleiades are seen as seven young women. But with the unaided eye, you can typically count only six. And many indigenous cultures also have a story of a lost sister to go with this. So why is this? Now, there are several theories. One involves the sky being clearer and, and our ancestors having better eyesight. But one that is more plausible to me involves the motion of the stars within the cluster. Now, Pleiades is close to us at 400 foot more light years away. And so you can see the movement of the stars in the cluster over historical periods of time. One star, Pleiades, is now so close to the star Atlas that they look like a single star to the unaided eye. But if we take what we know about the movement of these stars and rewind back about 100,000 years, Pleiades was further from Atlas and would have been easily visible to the unaided eye. So... 100,000 years ago, most people really would have seen seven stars in the cluster. And this means the stories of the seven stars go back to deep time when our ancestors were beginning to move from Africa through Asia down into Australia. That's cool. And that's rather mind-boggling to think that this is that the stories around the seven sisters probably the oldest uh, stories we have passed down from ancestor to ancestor to ancestor to descendant over tens or hundreds of thousands of years. Yep. Now, uh, indigenous names for Mars are rare in the Australian ethnographic re uh, record, but uh, in, indigenous Australians have a wealth of stories and names for the Pleiades. Possibly my favourite one comes from South Australia, from Uladea. And this is the story of Nirina and the young women 
uh, never wished to mate with men and they lived by themselves and kept the tribe of dingoes to keep men away. Now, Iriuna was a great hunter and he wanted the uh, uh, Ming Ari very badly for his wives and tried to uh, tried to uh, capture them, but the dingoes chased Iriuna away. So eventually the Ming Ari went into the sky in order to, to escape their uh, dogged pursuer, but uh, Nerunia followed them, and there he is still chasing them around the round, while the dogs, who are still with the Ari, keep him away. Now, now, in these accounts, the stars that constitute the western constellation of Orion is seen as this hunter, uh, Nerunia, I'll probably pronounce this completely and uh, in Dane Daisy Bates' account of this story, he's a vain pursuer of women with a feathered headdress, open body, and a string belt. And that's the belt of Orion. So each night he pursues the sisters, the Mingari, who together are known as the Ugaria. Uh, that's the name for the Pleiades. But he's prevented, ever prevented uh, from uh, reaching the Ugaria. Uh, uh, Gary Ilya by Kambuuda, the elder sister of the Mingari. And she's represented by the Hyades, and she taunts the hunter by standing before him. And there's a story of a fight between them. There's a big, the, uh, the Beetlejuice is, the, uh, is seen as the club uh, in Irunia's hands. And it's filled with fire magic, ready to throw at Cam Uthuna. And she lifts her, her foot, which is Aldebaran, is also full of fire magic. And puts out the fire magic of his arm. And she puts a line of dingo puppies between her and Niruna. And this, this line of dingo puppies is what we see as Orion's shield in Western traditions. Now, the story of the fight between Kambuhuda uh, and Iruna with the brightening and dimming of Aldebaran and Beetlejuice is thought to represent observations of the variability of these stars. So we bring in the astronomical observations by Indigenous peoples into a story about the sky peoples. I find it fascinating how you can build the observations of these uh, stars and the changing of the Pleiades cluster, the variability of Aldebaran and Betelgeuse uh, into a, a, a amazing coherent sky story, this amazing fight between the elder sister of the uh, Eugularia and, uh, and the hunter, flaring fire, flaring fire uh, represented by the variability of the stars. And so to bring it back to, to Mars, of course, we now have the uh, ruddy Mars joining the Pleiades, circumventing the fire magic of the, the sister and the hunter whose battle is playing out off to the uh, right. Uh, but very soon Mars will join uh, the sister and join her fiery foot in the fight against the, uh, the pursuing hunter. Fantastic, and variations of that story are in so many different cultures. It's in so many different cultures. 
Thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. And we'll remind people that at any time you can go to Ian's Astroblog to find out what's in the sky for the next month. And also good to catch up on Southern Skywatch. Yeah, Southern Skywatch gives the uh, the monthly sky guide and the Astro Blog gives you weekly sky guide as well as things that are coming up uh, quite often. One, if you're going to uh, Astro Blog, you'll notice off to the left-hand side, if you scroll down, I have a, a section called Posts by Theme. And one of the things that it uh, gives you is the year full of full moons. If you want to catch up on when uh, moons are going to be uh, perigee or apogee full moons so that you can plan your uh, astronomy uh, appropriately. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Ian. It's been great to speak with you and start the year off so well. And we'll see you in a month's time for the April Sky Guide. Indeed we will, and there are lots more coming up in April. So enjoy uh, this month's sky, and uh, we'll have more great sky uh, events uh, coming up soon. Look up and look often. Thanks, Ian. No worries. It's a pleasure. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!